And now for today's scripture reading from Ephesians 5, verse 5 through 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ken, for the announcements and from those uh, Bible verses, a very, very simple teaching this morning. It's a joke. It's a joke. Welcome back to Ephesians. <laughs> I think we're going to have to start with prayer. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we come together to open your word and to listen to what your spirit is saying to your church we ask that our hearts are open, that our minds are open to receive from you. Uh, we do have some challenging imperatives that you've given to us here in the latter part of Ephesians, and, and we desire to obediently and willfully follow you, and so may you empower us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we are picking up in chapter 5, um, starting in verse 5, but, but before I jump into verse 5, let's read from verse 1, just so that we have a little more context before we jump into verse 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." We started this study of Ephesians back in October, if you can believe that, and we've taken pauses during Advent, we took pauses during Lent, and we've listened to various elders and guest speakers along the way. And I bring this up because if you've recently just started listening in to this series, specifically if you have just began listening from chapter 4 to the present, you might misunderstand this letter if you don't really think through chapters 1 through 3. Because the first three chapters of this letter covered the doctrinal parts of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And those indicatives found in chapters 1 through 3 laid the foundation to this letter to the Ephesians. Those indicatives found in those first three chapters put down for us the spiritual, ethical, moral beliefs for those in Christ before we read any part of that second half of the letter, that we need to understand those things. Because the second half are the imperatives, the directives, the, 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 what he's telling us to do. But you need to first understand why, who we are, who God is. And now, why bring this up again? Because some of you have heard this over and over again, I'm sure. And you're thinking, man, he's bringing this up again. 
Because it's really important. It's really, really important. Because if you don't understand chapters 1 through 3, you'll read those parts in chapters 4 through 6 and think things about Christianity and the Bible that many people do that are really inaccurate. They're, they're false thinkings. The letter is calling those in Christ, in Christ, to simply be who we really are. To be who we are. And if you are not in Christ, the letter of this Bible to the Ephesians is not telling you who to be who you aren't. God is not calling you to be someone you are not. This is for those in Christ. You don't become in Christ through your own religious practices or because you just decided to start doing actions differently or, or stuff like that. You become in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not through yourself. So when looking at verses like verse 1, you aren't in Christ simply by imitating God. You are in Christ by being His beloved child. That you are His child. And as God's child, you are imitating your Father. You are imitating God. And so do you see the difference? It, it, it's, it's very different. Think about this. The children in your neighborhood who are around you and they're just imitating you. Are those really your children? You have your own children and those children imitating are, you are being who they are. And nothing will change the relationship that you have with them as your children. They are your beloved children. Those other kids who are imitating you don't become your children even though they're imitating you. They're not your kids. They're imitating you, but they're not your children. And so chapters 1 through 3 cover doctrinally who is God's child who is in Christ, who is the beloved child of God in Christ. And this imitation isn't simply by action, but because of who we are. And then who we are, those people walk in love. And what does that look like? How do we imitate God? We walk in love as God's beloved children. Verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the important word there is sacrifice. Jesus Christ lived in this self-sacrificial love. And imitating God as his beloved children is marked with walking in self-sacrificial love. And Paul starts this imitation with what we are to do with walking in self-sacrificial love. And then he writes this direct contrast imperative of what we shouldn't do in verses 3 and 4. And look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Imitate God as a child of his by walking in self-sacrificial love and don't do the very opposite of imitating God, which is self-indulgence. Don't do that. That's not God. Self-sacrificial love is to be ever so present as God's children who imitate God. And self-indulgent love, self-indulgent lust, impurities, covetousness, they are to be absent from the child of God. And here's something really important to understand from the Apostle Paul's letter. 
especially when we're getting into chapters 4 through 6 and the verses we find here in chapter 5, like verses 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to the church. Not those of us who just kind of just go to church, but those in Christ, in the church. And this letter is not addressed to those outside of Christ. So this isn't a reproach. This is not a rebuke against the culture or the world or what's going on with those outside of Christ. This is addressing those in Christ, in the church, not just physically attending it, but really in the family of the church, for those in Christ. Now I recognize that this calling here in Ephesians is a very, very high calling. It's very difficult. It's very challenging. To imitate God is a very high calling. And Jesus Christ did it to perfection. And for us, this is an incredibly high and incredibly challenging standard to live by. Love that is completely self-sacrificial and that is completely absent of self-indulgence. Can you even imagine how difficult that is? But this is to imitate God. This is how God's beloved children, his real children, those in Christ, imitate him. And it is improper for his children to think, live, talk in these ungodly ways. It is simply not Christ-like, not God-like. And it's impossible to live in this way on our own. We, we can't do it on our own. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you see how important it is to get a very firm understanding of chapters 1 through 3 before we even start looking at chapters 4 through 6. You see how important it is to understand God is forming us into his holy people. And I love when God does this sort of thing, because like Nathan and I, we didn't talk before this sermon, but he started off with, with holiness and showing God's holiness, that, that we are not common. And I love when the Holy Spirit does that work, and he just kind of weaves those things together with our worship and, and prayer and, and, and the sermon. And sometimes people think that their existence is, is about happiness, I mean, we look at even the foundations of our country in terms of like the pursuit of happiness, but maybe for those outside of Christ, maybe that's the way it is for them. But for those of us in Christ, our existence is about holiness. And that's a huge distinction between those in Christ and those outside of Christ. The, the pursuit of holiness versus the pursuit of happiness. And you can see how divergent those paths are as one leads to God and the other one leads to idolatry. Happiness. I mean, think about this. Is that what life really is all about? Is this feeling? And that if you have it, then it's great. And if you don't, then it's not. But isn't that shallow? That if that's all it is, because then how does that help us understand suffering or pain or the challenges that we face? How does that help us understand a deeper and richer love? And it's not to say that those in Christ don't experience happiness, because of course we do. 
but it's just not our end goal. Our end goal is not happiness. Holiness is our end goal. Now take a look at what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." We are being matured in our faith. And sometimes it's very challenging to realize what God is doing in the present, which is why the Bible is so important for those of us in Christ. It allows us to see what God is doing more clearly. It helps us see the relationship we have with God as his beloved children. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not as much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Holiness. That we may share his holiness. God's children imitate him. And we are becoming more and more like Christ. Now verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Why? Now you'll notice this conjunction in verse 5, and this is why. It says for, which is telling you why to verse 4 in verse 5. For, verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. For, you may be sure of this. Of what? That the harmful actions and those harmful conversations written about in verses 3 and 4 lead people to have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That the actions of verses 3 and 4 are sure to lead to no inheritance. For you may be sure of this. It's very rare for the Bible to write something like that or for the writers of the Bible to write something like that. Do you realize what Paul is doing. He's wanting you to absolutely understand this. Absolutely be sure of this. And what we find in verse 5 is repeated from verse 3. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. In verse 3, Paul wrote that it must not even be named among you. And then in verse 5, that everyone living this way has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We can't be heirs to a holy and heavenly kingdom if we belong to a sinful one. So how are you living? And again, this is not how are you living to everyone. This is how are you living those in Christ. 
If you are in Christ, you are his beloved child, how are you living? 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take sins away, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, starting verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Our actions speak louder than our words. So do these biblical passages mean that those who fall into sins of sexual immorality, of impurity, of covetousness, are everlastingly excluded from the kingdom of Christ and God? No. No. Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. Thank God that you may be feared. That we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit that continually convicts us of our sin so that we may repent and we confess our sins and we change. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. This is the heart of God. But there needs to be Repentance. You can't just keep going the same way. There needs to be a change. There's, there needs to be a, a transformation. And if there isn't a change, then there is no repentance. The self-indulgence of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, that needs to be released. That needs to be let go. You can no longer be held in bondage to it. And the thing is, is that you and I will always have appetites for those things. Always. I've talked to the saints, 80 plus years old, 90 plus years old. They're still dealing with these things. I'm like, isn't there like hormones that change in you? Like, don't they change? And they're like, no, we still deal with that stuff. I can't believe it. I was looking forward to something. <laughs> but those appetites, they never die. You always want more. They are greedy. 
You cannot satiate them. And you take more than what was created by God for the well-being of his beloved children. You want more. The person justified by God is the same person who is being sanctified by God. And if you are not being sanctified, meaning you show no evidence of sanctification, of being more Christ-like, then you haven't been justified. Don't fool yourself. There is a regeneration. That the Spirit is in our life and it illuminates the Word of God to us. It illuminates the path that is before us. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. God is sanctifying us to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, His Son. And this is not some instantaneous thing like justification is. Justification is instantaneous. You are justified. But sanctification, this is a process. And if you are marked by sexual immorality in this sanctification process, or impurity, or covetousness, the things that are completely normal in our culture and in our world, then where is the evidence of this sanctification? And if there is no evidence of this sanctification, then you don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God because you aren't justified. The world and the culture are common and they tell us what is fine to accept by their standards, but it's a common standard. The thing is, is that we are holy. We are not common. We are uncommon. God tells us what is holy and what is acceptable in the kingdom of Christ and God. God doesn't justify people whom he does not sanctify. How does God sanctify us? He gives us his word with his promises, with his warnings, where we are to obediently follow them as his truly beloved children in Christ. Not playing church just because you go to church or just because you read your Bible or just because you do religious things. And every single one of us, we start at the same place, which is at the foot of the cross where we confess our sins. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, which happens a lot. You'll have people all over this world who say like, yeah, that's too literal. That's an archaic belief. That's not the way it is. We've evolved. We've, we look at our science, look at our technology, look at our medicine, look at our education, all these. Some, I have to warn you as a pastor, as a shepherd, empty words. Empty words. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be deceived by those empty words. They don't tell you where you go for everlasting life. They're telling you those greedy, self-indulgent things. Go ahead and take pleasure in all those things. It's not about self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial love. And there will be many who will attempt to deceive you with those empty words. What is their purpose in telling you those things anyway? What kind of investment do they have in your everlasting life anyway? Why would you listen to that? Many will pull us away from the word of God. And we deal with these empty words all the time. People defining what love is when they're just as fallible and weak and broken as the rest of us as human beings. And they can't promise anything about our future. Yet they tell us all these promises and they tell us all these warnings, but they don't promise us anything that they can deliver on. People giving us empty words about tomorrow when they don't even have control of today. And we listen to them. I mean, isn't that foolish? Just try living a godly life. And there will be plenty who will come out to deceive you with their empty words. Just try it. Explaining away sins psychologically or educationally or socially or medically or however you want to think of things. And, and, and all we have to do is look at the 4th of July weekend last weekend. Did you know nationally over 400 shootings that weekend? Over 150 of those fatal just last weekend, 4th of July weekend, Oakland had seven. That day, 12-hour window, two deaths, one from the shooting and one wasn't, but 12-hour window, seven shootings, two deaths. There are so many problems in our homes, in our schools, on our streets, the courts, the laws, everywhere. We are being deceived by empty words all the time. Things are not getting better. Let's not fool ourselves. And if you are not in Christ, they're getting worse for you. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I don't know the type of picture people have of a wrathful God. I can just imagine that some people are thinking of God as this uncontrollable, angry God who's just destroying everything in his path. That's an inaccurate portrayal of God. The wrath of God is more like a medical oncologist. That that doctor sees a cancer that is killing their patient, and they are going to do everything in their power to get rid of it. And they will use everything at their disposal to eradicate that cancer that is taking their patient's life. That doctor is not some uncontrollable, angry guy towards the cancer. He has a strategy. She has a plan. They have a settled response in how they're going to deal with that tumor. And God's wrath is contained within his holy character, his righteous anger, and he is focused on what is killing, destroying, harming, disappointing, breaking, spoiling people's lives. And he wants to get rid of that. 
God isn't angry at humanity. He's wanting to get rid of the cancer that is in you and to kill it. But there will be those who will deceive you with the empty words. You don't have cancer, you're fine. You're fine. That, that brokenness, that darkness, that chaos, bitterness, lack of peace, all those things have a root cause, and it's called sin. And you have it in you. And the wrath of God is coming for it. It wants to eradicate it. But until then, people will deceive one another. And this is what God will do. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Skip down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So you notice that in verse 24 and 28. God gave them up. God is not going to just keep messing with you. If you want to go that way, you go that way. God will give those up who reject the truth, who invite idolatry in their life, who just live unrighteous lives and they just embrace that sexual immorality, the impurity, the foolish talk, all those sorts of things. And chapters 1 through 3 tell us what God thinks. They tell us why God sent Jesus Christ to fix what is broken and dark. He tells us who we are before any of these imperatives that we find here in chapters 4 through 6. So don't miss out on chapters 1 through 3. That's why. And people forget or they don't know where the wrath of God was poured out and they think that God just has it out for the world, that he's going to just destroy the world. But you have to think, again, you got to go back to the foot of the cross. It's where it starts for all of us, that those of us who are in Christ, that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Poured out on his only begotten son so that that wrath would not come upon us. The foundation of our salvation is what Christ has done for us. It's not anything done by us. It's only by what Christ has done for us and in us. Part of what Christ has done for us is empowering us with a self-sacrificial love and then saying no. No to self-indulgence. Because that's not Christ-like. Saying no to the things that stunt our spiritual maturity, that sanctification process. To reject that which harms our spiritual intimacy with God. Not out of our own power, not out of our own will, but simply because we are living into who we truly are as God's beloved children. That that's our identity in Christ. Not something else. Simply that. Our identity is in Christ. We imitate Christ because we are his beloved children. We do as Christ does, and when we don't, when we fall, we repent. We seek forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, we have these very challenging words from our brother Paul. And I ask God that these are taken to heart, that these are not misinterpreted in terms of um, what I've said or even 
my posture, but that your Holy Spirit is so powerful and large enough to correct my own missteps. Lord, may your love be what is pouring out and your mercy and your grace and your desire to invite people into being children of yours. And not just by lip service and not just simply by attending church, but truly giving up of themselves, confessing of their sins, and being transformed by your Holy Spirit in your word. God, we're so broken and, and we're so prideful to think that we know the difference between right and what's wrong. And ask God that you would give us discernment to just walk in your path. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, for those of you who have your communion elements, let's take those out now. And if you don't, just raise your hand and we can get some over to you. And first, we'll just start with the wafer symbolizing the body of Christ. That was broken for us, for our sins. I'm sure there are people, whether here physically or watching us online, that need some work in that sanctification process of repenting. So take time to do that. If you're not quite right with the Lord, just pause and work those things out. Let's take this together. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. That wonderful promise that he says that keep doing this until I return. And so we wait for his return. Let's take this together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these beautiful symbols of your promise to us, your warnings to us, your love for us. We pray, Lord, that those warnings and promises don't fall on hard hearts, but that we are transformed more and more into your image in Jesus' name. Amen.